Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and our text this morning will be verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. And you will want to have a finger over in Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at several passages this morning. We're looking at Noah, and Noah is presented as an example of faith to the Hebrews. And he's a good example for them as they faced the mocking voice of the world. It was the same voice that Noah faced. And Noah is brought before their eyes as one that endured. He's brought before their eyes as an example, as one that was faithful despite being mocked in the world. And that he was rewarded as he trusted by faith in the unseen. And so he's given as an example to encourage the Hebrews to keep pressing forward, to persevere in their faith. As we look at Noah, he followed God's word despite the foolishness of that word before a watching world, which encourages us to keep moving forward despite what the world may think of us and the message of Christ. And we see three simple things in the text this morning. We see the ground of faith, we see the effect of faith, and we see the fruit of faith. And these three things emerge just naturally from uh, verse, excuse me, I said verse 8, it's verse 7. And so let us read verse 7 of Hebrews 11. You had to go back one verse. By faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And this is the word of God, and we begin by seeing here the ground of faith and the ground of faith is the Word of God. The text says being warned by God, and that being warned by God is that God's Word came to Noah by special revelation. It wasn't something that Noah just observed and realized he needed to act upon, but rather God specifically came to Noah. God revealed His will to him. Whenever you find this word warned in Scripture, it's actually in the New Testament nine times, and seven of those nine times speaks of a very special demonstration of God's revelation coming to someone. You think of when the angel came to Mary. It's that same word. So it's speaking of, of divine instruction. This warn, what we need to read of it, is that it is God's Word, a supernatural, God-initiated revelation of His plan of what's coming. So this is an extraordinary command that's coming to Noah. And in the warning, what we see is God gives a warning that there is a coming judgment, a coming judgment of the flood. And this teaches us something about the nature of God's Word in when it brings warning. And so if you have your finger in Genesis 6, let's switch over there for a moment. What we see with God's revelation is God's revelation comes immediately, but the fulfillment of that revelation takes time. 
So God's warning of judgment is quick. There's a coming judgment. But the actualization, the realization of that judgment takes a period of time. In fact, we see in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 4, or excuse me, and when we're looking at the text here, we see a come, uh, back up before verse 4, in verse 3, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That's not a reference to how long man will live. That is a reference to God now has a timetable on which he is going to flood the earth and bring judgment. There's going to be a 120-year period of time before God floods the earth. And so God gives this warning. He also gives a warning to Noah in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so it's almost as if God sets a, a, a stopwatch for 120 years before he's going to bring judgment. And then he warns again to Noah that judgment is coming, but what we see is it's not immediate. And there's two things that we need to recognize about this. Is God will cut off His grace. God will cut off His grace to people. God will cut off His mercy. God will at one point act. And that is coming. You know, sometimes we think of God's He's eternally gracious. Well, we see that God is gracious to the wicked and the righteous alike and that he sends rain to, fill, to water the crops and people are able to benefit to, from that. And God sustains mankind. Man's able to live. God is gracious for a period of time. But that grace comes to a point where it stops. God is eternally gracious as in God is eternal and His grace is there for the intended period of time that He allows it. But there comes a point where that's shut off. And the point is this, is there comes a point that God's Word says judgment is coming. And the thing that we have to face, just as the generation of Noah had to face, is this, you will not live forever. You will die. From the moment of conception on, you are working on death. We believe life begins at conception, right? And from that moment on, you're working on death. There comes a period of time that's only known to God. As Job chapter 14 verse 5 says that man's days are determined and boundaries are set around that and they cannot be exceeded by man. There comes a point where God's grace is going to end. But then we also see this wonderful truth. God's grace is always more than expected. He gives them 120 years. God's grace is always greater than what we deserve. 
You see this in so many ways, and just as you look at Genesis chapter 6, it's really tragic. Actually, as after you move out of Genesis chapter 3, you move into the tragic realities of, of sin that permeate the rest of Scripture. And throughout all of that, you see God is gracious, and His grace is more than, more than expected. And you see that so clearly as you look at just what unfolds after Adam and Eve's sin and in their children. You see in, in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 6, when we read this, this, this section here of the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and all so afterwards, the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and men of renown. That's a very confusing passage, but it's to, we have to understand this foremost, is that it's to illustrate the level of wickedness that had come upon the earth. And, and I believe what this passage is saying is that you have the godly line of Seth now marrying with the, the ungodly line of Cain. But they've given a, the line of Seth has given up their heritage that they had and now marrying into the line of Cain. And so even those that were set apart as a line that was, was to be faithful and was to be the line through which the Messiah would come, even they are, are corrupted in their actions. In fact, the text speaks of the wholesale corruption of mankind. In verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is speaking in a, in a superlative manner of the wickedness of, the man, of man's heart. He's speaking not only of their actions, but the very intention of the heart itself. It's only evil, qualified as only evil, continually. It's ongoing. Why does God warn these people? But he does. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. The violence and wickedness and the murderous thoughts of Cain now are reaching fruition, where now violence surrounds all of mankind. Verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. On earth, it was a universal problem of sin. We we believe in original sin, and that is that the the sin of Adam is imputed to all people. What's interesting is if you study chapter six carefully, you'll see this pattern emerge, and it will say something to this effect: God saw, and it refers to wickedness, and then it's always followed with God said. God saw. God said, and you see that pattern emerge three different times throughout the text that shows us something wonderful about this grace of God and this warning of God is that when he sees the wickedness, he provides his word as an ark of safety. God sees the human dilemma. He sees the sinfulness of man, and he provides an answer by bringing his word. And we have to take note of that. Noah alone responds. 
Noah alone responds. And you might ask why. Well, let me just ask you, why did you respond to the warnings of judgment when you heard the gospel message? Why is it that you responded to the call to come to Christ in faith? And the wonderful truth about this is that we see in God's grace is always more than expected is this we see this in the picture of the parable of the prodigal son. What does the father do when he sees the prodigal son coming home? Does he just simply welcome him home? Does he do it? No, he runs. The father is always giving more grace than what is expected. He runs to his prodigal people. We know that he did this with Noah. But we can't miss this. While our Lord is quick with grace and slow to anger, don't miss there does come judgment. And his, his period of grace will, will, will end. Now the whole earth we see was filled with violence. Does that apply to today that the whole earth is filled with violence? Our only hope of safety is in the one in whom there was no violence. As our ark of safety. And let me tell you this, is the Lord does in fact reveal his will to his people. The Lord reveals his word to his people, to their heart, and he does this to his chosen people. We see in Psalm 25, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And notice what it says of this friendship. And he makes known to them his covenant. The Lord makes known his will to his people, which means it's this, it's something special and it, it, is, it is beyond what can be uh, readily observed by all people. So it's, it's more than just that someone could pick up the Bible and say, oh, okay, I understand what this means. No, this is speaking of a special revelation in the heart that is initiated by God in His Spirit, by His Spirit, into the heart of His people. The Lord in special revelation is the one that takes initiative. And as I said already, this goes beyond just a, a simple understanding of the word. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In other words, God sends His Spirit to the heart to illuminate your heart that you might now understand God's Word. And apart from the work of the Spirit, you can't understand God's Word. Apart from God's grace poured into your heart by His Spirit, this is Word is no different than reading any other ancient book of antiquity. But when the Spirit works, it becomes the very Word of God in our hearts. It's always the Word of God. I'm not saying that it's not always the Word of God. Just saying we, we don't understand it, and it doesn't become to us that until a work of the Spirit. This is the ground of faith for Noah, is the Word of God. The Word of God comes to his heart and is given to him. What is the ground of our faith is also the Word of God. For faith comes by what? And what is it that we hear? We hear the Word of God. 
That is the ground of faith. But I want you to notice the effect of faith. The effect of faith, it says that Noah was moved to fear. And specifically, when it says he was moved to fear, this is speaking of a life of faith. This is now resulting in, because of his faith in the promises, it now turns into a life that is lived for God. And this, this idea of fear... It's not a fear of judgment. It's not a, a fear of punishment. That's not the type of fear. You can think of it as an obedience with awe. That he has a reverence towards God's word. It's a fear that moves one to action. And specifically, what is that action? Well, the text tells us this. He constructed an ark. But yet the purpose and how this would all unfold was unseen. It was given to him by a warning. But no one had built an ark. No one had seen a worldwide flood. And so what does he do? He lives his life in obedience to the Lord's word. Why? Because he had faith. True faith is a faith that moves one to action. True saving faith is a faith that lives that turns into a life lived according to the word of God. The things unseen, trusting in the promises, those things that are yet to have happened, that, that is what faith is, and that is what a, a living faith is. Now consider the nature of this unseen faith for Noah. By the way, let me just say this. That a worldwide flood is what the text teaches. It does not teach a localized flood. It doesn't teach just a, a, uh, something that was only in a certain region. It, the text of Scripture teaches a worldwide flood, that the whole entire earth was, was covered in water. And the other thing is that we have to note this is that Noah was a living, breathing, human, historical person, just as historical as George Washington was historical. Except for we have a more sure word of Noah. And I'm not going to get into the arguments why we should believe that. The, God, the word of God says it, and we rest as the ground of faith, our faith on the word of God. Now there's evidence for it. But we don't rest our faith upon evidence. We rest our faith upon the Word of God. There's scientific proof of that, but we don't rest our, our faith upon something lesser. That's lesser. God's Word is higher. And so we trust in God's Word. There was a universal deluge. You see in chapter 6 and verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die. That cannot be a local flood. That is speaking of a universal flood that covers the entirety of the earth, that there's not a, there's not a dry spot to which someone could flee to and, and be inverted the, the, the judgment of God. 
In chapter 7 of Genesis, in verse 4, we read, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Again, is a statement of, of this universality of God's flood that he would bring. In chapter 7, verse 17 through 19, the flood continued. Forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. This is a tremendous statement of God's judgment. Every living thing died. That is incredible. How often do we see a picture of Noah's ark and the happy animals in the ark in a nursery? And we laugh because our nursery has that. Every nursery does. What's missing from the picture? The death of every single thing on the face of the earth in God's judgment. We have to see the reality of that, that God judged the wickedness of the earth because God will judge again. And his judgment is either in the cross or we will face it ourselves. This is the first, shows us the nature, but also to build a ship. The shipbuilding business was not a, what is not a serious industry during Noah's time. It was not something that, that one would invest in. But we see that God tells him this in chapter 6, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of it is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. This is a massive ship. And the calculations of it are, are over the size of a football field. It's, this is an incredible task that Noah is set to, to build. And he has this period of time where he has to build it. No one's built a ship this size. I haven't been to the Creation Museum, but I've had many friends that go that say that the, 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 the recreation of Noah's Ark there is just is incredibly impressive of how large it is. Nothing like this had ever been done before. You can imagine, okay, there's never been a flood. No one's ever really came about to build a, a ship of this magnitude. But then there's also another aspect of this that shows us the nature of Noah's faith. He has to build a big ship for a flood that's never happened before. And then God says, I'm going to send the animals to you. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam had dominion over the animals, and the animals would have been at peace with Adam because there would have been no death. But upon the fall, death enters into the world. No longer do you have the lion that you can pet, but now the lion will eat you. 
They, 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 they fear man. But what do we see happens is that all the creatures will come to it. God said this in chapter 6, verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. You think about the extraordinary nature of this. I think because of our familiarity with the story of Noah and his ark. And, and as a child, I remember it being one of my favorite stories. We lose the awe of what he's having to prepare now you think about it, we're going to have a Thanksgiving feast next Saturday here. We're going to have plenty of food, and we all prepare for that for one night. Now, now go prepare for a year, and also we're going to bring all the animals with us. That's an extraordinary feat that takes place. It's an impossible feat apart from God. Now, despite all of this unseen that has yet to have happened, despite all of that, what do we see? Verse 22 of chapter 6, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. We don't know what, what happened in Mo, Noah's thinking. All we are told is that God says, I'm going to do these things you're to do these things. And Noah obediently followed it, even despite the absurdity of it. That's Noah's response. He did all that God commanded him. Why? Because God gave him his word. Friends, has God given us his word? will be said of us that we did all that God commanded of us. Well, we know that we fall short. We have to recognize a parallel for us is this, is the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's word has been delivered to us, has been given to us. And while we may look foolish in the eyes of the world, while the world may mock us for believing in a resurrected and living Savior, this is what God says of you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world says you're foolish, just as the world said that Noah was foolish. But God says you are holy and precious, that you are elect exiles. We face Noah's dilemma today, even if we believe what Noah believed about a coming flood. You believe in a worldwide flood, you are crazy. 
You believe the Bible on ethics? What the Bible says and how you're supposed to live your life? You're on the wrong side of history. You believe what the Bible says about a second coming? We've been waiting 2,000 years. Where's this coming of Christ? You people are naive. That's what the world says. That's what the world says to us, just as it said to Noah. But what was the fruit of his faith? We've seen the ground of his faith. We've seen the effect of his faith, that he was moved with fear. But what was, what was the fruit of his faith? Well, let me, let me read of it in chapter 11, verse 7 in Hebrews. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So there's three aspects of this fruit. There's, the, there's three uh, fruits, you could say. The first is the saving of his household. The second is the, that he preached righteousness, and by that the world was condemned. And then the third is that he became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. Now, Second Peter tells us specifically in chapter 2, in verse 5, how many were saved? If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he saved his family. He saved his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. And so he was able to save them, that they were able to be brought through that. And, and why is it that God saved them? Well, in chapter 6, verse 18 of Genesis, and I'm sorry to go be going back and forth, but, but we have to look at the totality of the Scripture on this. In chapter 6, verse 18 of Genesis, we read these words, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God initiates a covenant to save Noah and his children. And if you go over to Genesis 9, verse 15. And by the way, that's the first time the word covenant, bereath, is mentioned in the Old Testament. In verse 15, we read this of chapter 9 of Genesis. I will remember my covenant. Now, this language is so crucial. To understand why did God save them? I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never come again, become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now why is it that God saved them? He makes this covenant with them. This is not a covenant that brings eternal salvation. This is not a covenant that brings eternal life. Because it's a covenant that is made with all flesh and all man, and not all man is saved. What is it? It's this, that God preserves all of mankind. Why did he do that? Because God made a promise to send forth his son. God made a promise to Adam and Eve in cursing the serpent 
that he would send forth his son, the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And God had not yet sent that seed. And so he preserves mankind and a line which will come through the sons of Noah, Shem, that the Messiah would come. This is why God saved his family and his children, is because he had set them aside to bring about and provide a line for the Messiah. Notice we see this, that by building the ark, this is the second fruit. He condemned the world. By building an ark, Noah's actions condemned the world. His actions were a testimony. The passage I read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, called him a herald of righteousness. A herald is to uh, a preacher, it's to proclaim, to herald something. It's oftentimes translated as a preacher. So Noah was in fact a preacher preaching the promises of the coming Messiah. William Perkins says this, For as every strike in the making of the ark was a loud-sounding sermon unto that sinful generation to call them to repentance, so was it also an assurance unto Noah of his deliverance. Wonderful truth there. But you can just imagine the, the, the imagery that Perkins brings out that, that every time he strikes, whatever, however he put the boards together, it was a loud-sounding sermon to that generation. And then also the means of his assurance that he was in fact saved. And so while the world just enjoyed pleasure, while the world enjoyed unrestrained sin, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 6, Noah builds an ark. He builds a big boat. And he says, I'm going to have all, all God's going to send all the animals into this boat. You can just imagine the people laughing at crazy Noah. He warned them, though, of judgment to come, but they were unabated in their desires. While Noah preached righteousness and lived according to the word of God because he was truly saved, he proclaimed the promises of the Messiah and he proclaimed the warnings of judgment and the people just laughed on and looked on for 120 years. John Owen makes this frightening observation about this. He says this, when the preaching of righteousness loseth its efficacy... That means it loses its effect. The preaching of righteousness loses its effect in the conversion of sinners. It's a token of approaching desolations. What John Owen is saying is when people quit, stop being converted to faith under the preaching of God's Word, that is a sign that there is certain judgment coming. May that, may that wake us up. In this land. May that be the means that the Lord brings about revival today. In, in this town, in this state, in this country. It may be a revival that spreads throughout the world. That the Lord would bring revival. Many places he is. 
And in other places, it seems as if the preaching of righteousness has, as Owen says, lost its effect. What does that mean for that people? What does that mean? It seems to me, as, as you look at this account, that part of what defined Noah's faith was not only his building of an ark, but by faithfully sharing the message of the Messiah. In other words, there's no separation between... Noah wasn't isolated. Okay, God's going to save me, so I'm going to build this boat, and I'm just going to go to task on that. That wasn't what Noah did. Noah's given the warning... He's obedient in doing what God has told him to do. But then in doing that, he's telling his generation, guys, time's running out. Judgment is coming. Trust in the Messiah. Look to the Messiah. You will be rescued by the Messiah. And that generation said, we're partying. We're fulfilling our own desires. We're going after the lust of our hearts. And Noah's sitting there building the ark, hammering away at it, and saying, trust in the Messiah. Trust in the Messiah. Why would we hold back from sharing if we believed a universal judgment was coming? Do you believe that God's word clearly says there is a universal judgment coming, of which a day that no one knows? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting watching how people respond to what's taken place in the Middle East. I personally don't read my Bible with a newspaper in my hand. And I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just giving this as an example. It must be the end. It must be the end because of what's going on over there. Does that drive the people of God then to share of a coming judgment? Does it? Those that are very concerned and, 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 and infatuated with end times and infatuated with what's taking place in the Middle East, does that lead them to get out there and actually say, there's a coming judgment? If the answer is no, then I hate to say it, we're not living like Noah. But let me just put it in something that I do believe is that, that is very real to us, is does the reality of hell, that is eternal suffering under the wrath of God, that can never be quenched, does that drive us to share with our loved ones the gospel? And say there, there's a coming judgment, but there is, there is one that has taken that judgment, if you would trust in Jesus if you would no longer trust in your own works, but if you would trust in the Messiah and His perfect work, does that lead us to share the truth of the gospel? There's a third fruit here, and that is He is an heir of righteousness. Noah is an heir of righteousness. He was accounted as righteous, and, and to be an heir comes by way Normally, when we think of the word heir, to become an heir becomes by natural birth. Right? The firstborn receives the inheritance. 
But there's also an heir by adoption. And this was an heir by adoption. That he was adopted into the family of God. And what we see in in the case with, with Noah is whatever belongs to our adoption becomes ours by being an heir. Noah received the righteousness of Christ as an heir. This is why first in John chapter 1, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Who gives that right? God, by his mercy, by his grace, gives that right to be adopted into the family of God. And how does it come? Well, the text tells us this comes by faith. Noah trusted in the promises of the Lord and was accounted as righteous. Now, how do we understand this? How was he accounted as righteous? Was it because he, he built an ark really well? Is it because Noah was an exceptional preacher? Though I'm sure he was an exceptional preacher and he was an exceptional ark builder. Was that the reason he was accounted as righteous? Well, no. The text in Genesis tells us in verse 8 of chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Hang on the word favor. That is the word grace. Noah was given grace by God. Now look what follows grace. And it's always in this order. What follows grace? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. God's grace was poured into his heart that he might believe in the coming Messiah. Grace precedes righteousness. And he became that heir of righteousness. How do do we become heirs? Well, we become heirs of righteousness in the same way that Noah did, is that is by adoption and not by law. Galatians says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. Galatians goes on to say, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So our adoption is not by what we do and how well we build the ark, how well we preach the gospel. It comes by God's grace to us. And so let us look to our gracious Heavenly Father who calls, who adopts, and who keeps eternally. We have seen the ground of faith. We have seen the effect of faith. We have seen the fruit of faith. But I want you to notice a couple of points for us to just reflect on. Is, is judgment produced salvation? Judgment produced salvation. As the ark was the safety that went through the flood, Christ is our ark. As we rest in Him, we are saved from the wrath of God. The the ark traveled through the flood, which was the judgment waters. It endured the beating of the waves and the rain and the flood. But those that were inside the ark were kept safe from that judgment of God. As the ark bore the wrath of the flood waters, so Christ bore the wrath of God that if we are in Him, we are saved from the wrath of God. 
Noah was warned of water, and it drove him to reverence and obedience. We're warned of fire. Does it drive us and move us to live for Christ as well? How, how shall we now live in the midst of a wicked generation? How shall we live with a mocking voice? How shall we face the trials and, and the temptations that are before us in a pluralistic society? How shall we navigate the times we now live in the book of Job, Eliphaz says these words to Job. He says, will you keep the old way that the wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was watched away. Will we look to the Messiah and rest in him and in him alone? Or will we like Cain? bring the fruit of our hands and ask the Lord to accept it. There's only one ark of safety and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him and in Him alone are we counted righteous because of His righteousness. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace is beyond our comprehension. Your grace is, is more than we could ever expect. Your grace is rich and full and complete. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in him. We thank you that the Spirit has revealed this to our hearts, that we might trust in Christ. We pray for your grace to be upon us, that we, as Noah, would live a life in obedience to your word, that we would do as Noah did and do all that you commanded. But Father, we're, we're comforted by the gospel because we know we do not do all that you have commanded, but Christ did for us. And in him and in him alone, we have assurance and salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.